I can remember when I was probably under 10, but around 10 years old, my dad began to take me bass fishing. Are there any fishing gurus in here? Anyone really like to fish? Andrew does? Yeah, okay. Well, my dad raised me on an open-faced bait caster. Uh, some of you, probably a lot of you, use the spinning reels. I don't know how to do that to save my life, so I'm just, I'm just going with the open-faced bait caster. But my dad taught me how to put the line in there, how to you know, thread it through, and you know, hook it to the, uh, the lure, where if you, you know, pull on it tighter, it actually gets tighter. You know, that's a cool little fisherman's knot. Uh, but he showed me how to pick out the lure that was appropriate for the weather and the fish we were going for. We usually bass fish. Trot lining, running trot lines and everything is a whole other deal. But I remember him teaching me the different skills and the intentionality behind what we were doing with fishing. And so he taught me, you know, a lot of times the bass really love those chartreuse colored white spinnerbait combinations. So that's what we did. So we'd go out on the Cattern Creek, the Arkansas River, and we'd go on these, this backwater area and we'd, we'd throw the lure. And so he taught me how to throw it up just in the brush where you wouldn't get it hung, but you could reel it in really slow, nice and slow on the top of the water. And if you ran it past the right kind of fish at the right exact time with the right bait in the right conditions, you could have a fish fry. And so I picked up on that concept. Now, I'm not saying we had a whole lot of fish fries. I'm not saying we were that successful. But my dad taught me the concept, and it's stuck with me ever since, that if I put the right bait, let me do this. If I put the right bait in front of the right fish at the right time, I'm going to have a fish fry. And that's exactly what James here is trying to avoid with Christians here today. That's what James is trying to avoid. If you, if you haven't already made your way, make your way to James chapter 1. That's what we're going to be studying this morning. But James is trying to avoid an eternal fish fry. Think about that. Keep that in mind as we go through. James is going to talk, we're talking about temptations. James knows that when we face external trials and tribulations and testing, so when, when bad things happen to good people, we... We're not really that good, but we claim we're good. When, when negative things happen to us, when bad things happen, James knows that we're often, when we're going through a test or a trial, we're also tempted almost with the back door. We're tempted to cave in to sin or, or take a different way contrary to God's will. And so James wants us to avoid an eternal fish fry. He wants us to understand the bait and, and the process of temptation. James chapter 1, verse 13 Chris just read it a second ago. We appreciate him. He said, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. Verse 16, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Don't be deceived. James is going to present to us this idea that temptation lures us towards death, but God's truth always draws us to life. Temptation lures us away to death. But God's truth draws us to life. Yeah, temptation's an interesting thing. Temptation is usually associated in a lot, a lot of times, it gets a bad rap, it's negative connotation, and it should, especially biblically, because every time temptation's brought up in Scripture, temptation is very, it always has something to do with causing us to lure us towards death. Next slide, please. 
If you want to think about the definition of temptation, this may not be Merriam-Webster definition for you. However, this is kind of putting it in my own words. Temptation is that pressure you feel from your inner desires to do something that's contrary to God's will. So, in other words, you know what God's will says over here. You know God says this about this certain thing. God's very clear in his word. And yet, here's the world over here. The world's over here dangling the fishing lure right in front of you. And it's playing off your inner desire. And here you are in the middle now. What do I do? I feel the pressure. The world or Satan's tempting me from my own inner desires. I know what God says over here, but here's the lure over here. What am I going to do? And thus you feel that pressure inside. There's that temptation. You know, we're really prone to blame God for that kind of stuff. I know we as Christians don't ever struggle with that, but when things go wrong, we often say, God, why would you ever let me go through this? Why, why do I have to go through temptation? Why? Why? And we somehow think that God's behind it all. And it's no different than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Next slide, please. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So Satan comes, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and, and questions Eve. Did God really say don't do this? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And, and the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, she quotes it verbatim. We may, not eat, we may eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice how well Eve can reply to the serpent, how much she knows Scripture. She's been reading her Bible. She can memorize it. She can quote it back to somebody. Next slide. But the serpent replies to Eve, you won't surely die, at least not today, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, well, it's a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. You see where this is going? Satan over here is dangling something in front of her. And it's luring and enticing on our own desires. And then, we know the account God comes forward, walking in the midst of the cool of the day, whatever that means, confronts Adam and Eve. They're, they've got the fig leaves sewn on at this point. Their eyes have been opened. And God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you? What did you do? And you know, but you know who he confronts first? This should scream at, on a megaphone. He doesn't say, Adam and Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? Head of household, male headship, where are you? Husbands, where are you? Setting the spiritual climate for your home. You may not honor it, but I do, says God. Are we setting the spiritual climate of our home? And so Adam then, you know, well, he, well God, if you hadn't given me, give me that woman... You know, she, she gave it, she was deceived, she gave it to me, and I ate, and I, I was standing there. But if you hadn't given me that woman, you know, I wouldn't be in this mess. We wouldn't be in this mess. God honors male headship, setting the spiritual climate of the home. It's not that the woman's not there to help. The woman's created to be a helpmate and to work together. But men are called to respond. And God's going to honor that male headship. 
But you see where it all started with this idea that God's not good, God's trying to keep something from you, God doesn't really care about you, and thus, well, if it really might, it might work out, and here we go. You and I are prone just as much to blame God. If we doubt his goodness and his character and, and, and we lack trust in him, we're more prone to give in to the temptation, the lures that are being dangled in front of us. Now, what are some common lures today? Next slide. Common lures today. Number one, this idea that, so what the world and Satan will dangle in front of you today is this idea that a spouse or worldly things can fulfill me or are going to fulfill me. In our world today, we have so many movies, Disney movies and rom-coms, and we love watching The Notebook and everything. I get it. But this idea that you've got to find that special someone, it's this romantical, romanticized thing, this idea that you, if you haven't found that person yet, then there's something wrong with you. Can I speak into your life this morning? If you're a single person today, you haven't found that special someone, or you're not married or whatever, there's nothing wrong with you. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you over here that are, not, that are single. There's nothing wrong with you. Seriously. But society has put this pressure and this weight on us to say that if you're not married, well, you're not really fulfilled yet. There's nothing wrong with you. You, in fact, Paul, listen, Paul wrote majority of the New Testament, and we're still reading it today, and he was single. I don't know what your gift is. I don't know what God's called you to. I don't know what role you're going to play in his kingdom, but I encourage you, those of you who are single here, find out what it is and run with it. You really don't need a spouse to do all of that. God can use you if you're single or even if you are married, right? Secondly, this one gets under my skin. I'm not even married. Happy wife, happy life. Happy husband, happy life. Happy spouse, happy life. Oh, oh, if the pits of hell could show their rear end, it's right here. I hate it. You know, in our society, sit, sitcoms. I like my sitcoms, but it's, it's still there. If you turn on the television, women are portrayed as the heroes, men are portrayed as the buffoons. It's true. I'm not saying it is true. That's how it's portrayed. That's, that is true. This idea that, well, I don't want a rocky marriage. I don't want something that's really going to rock the boat. You know, I don't really want to set the spiritual climate of my home. As long as she's happy, I, you know, maybe it'll work out. Or maybe if I just keep him appeased, or if he can go to the hunting club or whatever, okay, maybe, maybe we'll just be okay. The goal of your marriage is not happiness, it's holiness. And our chief aim should be to please God, not our spouse. And so if you're married today, I'm not married, but I can tell you from personal experience, I've seen my dad bite on this lure so many times and I care about your marriage so it doesn't end the same way. If you bite on this lure, there's no telling because you'll never please them fully like you can please God because God delights in us. I'm just telling you from personal experience, it led my father further into an addiction. It led him to lie and to do some illegal activity. And I'm not saying my mom was not in the guilty party. She leaned into it for sure. But I'm telling you, it ruins marriages. It ruins a family. Don't bite on this lure anymore. 
The goal of your marriage is not happiness, it's holiness. And I love you enough to tell you that today. Number three, another common lure, this idea that holiness is boring. Holiness is long-term, sustainable, and for those of us growing up today, around my age and younger, we are in the TikTok era, we're in the Instagram reels, highlights, you get on huddle with your sports and watch replays, and you get to post them, you pick out the best play you played on, and we're always going through the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. That's what we're doing. And so when we come and read scripture together, oftentimes it's viewed as boring. Well, it's, this was written decades or centuries, millenniums ago. How's it really going to apply to my life? And we just kind of go through the motions, and we seem, it feels like it's boring. And I get it. I do. Oop. I get it. I do. Seriously. It can seem boring at times because that's what grandma or grandpa does. But can I urge you today, holiness isn't necessarily boring. It's just long-term sustaining you for the next life to come. Psalm 1611 says that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore because of being in your presence. It's like the presence of God. There's something about being in his presence that brings fullness of joy. And oftentimes to seek his presence, to seek holiness, oftentimes doesn't look as fun as or appealing in the world, but that's why it's countercultural. That's why it's different. And so if I, if I bind this idea that holiness is always going to be fun or that it's always going to be boring, well, you can kind of undermine anything that God says when he calls you to be holy, right? Don't know where that can of worms is going to go. But God's intention is that you not necessarily be happy, but you be holy and content with the life to come. Now, James is going to make a big shift here in the text. That was 13 through 15. Common lures, temptations lure us towards death, but God's truth always draws us to life, Right? God is trying to draw us to something different and unique and radical and, and different than the rest of the world around us. James is going to go from the great temptation to the great restoration. And so, if temptations lure us to death and God's truth draws us to life, God's truth is the thing that's drawing us to life. And what's the truth we need to know? Verse 16 Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. When James says, don't be deceived, he doesn't want you to be lured away by the lies. He doesn't want you to be lured away by every little bait that the world throws at you. Don't bite on that spinnerbait. James wants us to know a few truths so that we get through and face temptation and endure. The truth that we need, number one, God is not the source of temptation. Every time we go through a trial or a tribulation, something tough or whatever, usually our first thought is, God, why? Lord, why would you let me do that? Why am I going through this again? Why is the car breaking down again? But God's not the source of temptation. James clears that up in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know it, verse 13, 
but God is actively looking to give us the way of escape. God's not involved with temptation other than trying to draw you out of it towards him and his goodness and his presence and his character and his truth. God is not intending that you cave under pressure and fall short, but rather you endure, that you endure by his loving grace, mercy, and providence through the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. God is all about your growth and sanctification. God's not involved about tearing you down. God is all about building you up into the image of his son. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen. It doesn't mean you're not touched by the world. It doesn't mean that you're not lured and enticed. Or at least trying to. It's not that God's going to you know, pluck you out of the situation and put you somewhere else necessarily. It means that God's going to see you through the trial and through it all. I'll be with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. And second truth up here. God's will is for our good and for his glory. Verse 17. James says, Every good gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. It's almost like James is trying to remind his readers that God made the stars. You walk out at night on a beautiful night, clear, blue, clear sky, what you'll see is all these stars lighting up, and they're there all the time, whether it's daytime or nighttime, but it's almost as if, God, if James is trying to remind his readers, hey, God's on the throne. He made the sun, the moon, the stars. He's making the whole world turn. He's still on his throne over the cosmos, and he can handle it. He also wants them to be aware that God's the only one that gives really good, perfect blessings for us. It's not always necessarily what we want, but it's always what we need. It's manna in the wilderness. It's exactly what we need for that day. And also, James says, of his own word, or his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we'd be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The idea of first fruits goes back to the Old Testament where the Israelites were called to uh, take a portion of their crop and put the best crop before the Lord, and I believe it went to the Levites. You might correct me after, but you always gave the first fruit or the best portion of, of your, your, your cattle or your crop to the Lord. And that's what God's wanting to do with us. He's wanting us to be the best, the first fruit of his crop because he's looking to harvest us one day. You and I are going to be a part of a harvest. It's called the harvest of righteousness. And God's trying to draw you towards him so that seeds would be planted and you would grow up a crop in your life and that one day when Jesus returns, all his saints will gather with him and will be a part of the harvest of righteousness. But he wants you to be part of the, the, the best of it, the, looking as much like Jesus as possible. That's the goal. That's his intention for you. So God's not the source of temptation. God's also trying to work his will, all of his plan together for our good and his glory. Now, if we know this, if we know this, that's exactly what Adam and Eve are dealing with. Well, maybe God's tempting me, or maybe God's will is not really for my good and his glory. Maybe he's just being selfish, trying to hide something from me, keep me from doing something, and I get a little rebellious. So what's the cure for our lures? I'm going to say this. Number one, we trust God's character and truth. That's the big thing that Adam and Eve really rebelled against. If they had just trusted that God's character is, is true, and that his word is true, and he actually means what he says, 
then maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't have seen as enticing. Or at the very least, at the very least, they could have walked away. But instead, they try to engage, and you see how it goes. What if we were a people that trusted God's character and his truth, no matter what we went through? I mean, that's kind of like a contagious faith, right? Right? This idea that your faith can be spread to other people. If I'm someone who is solely grounded on God's character and God's truth, don't I look more like him? Doesn't Doesn't it seem to spread to other people? Isn't that nice? I'm, you're here this morning, and I, I said this to early service, too. You're here on a Sunday morning when you could be doing so many other things. I'm not going to ask you if you trust God, because you're here. You know what the Bible says about coming to church. You, you know all that stuff. I'm not going to say if you trust God, but I'm going to ask how much do you trust God? To what degree have you brought your entire life... To what degree have you brought your life under his lordship? Like what areas of your life are still lacking? What areas of your life are still not completely under his lordship that you're called to die to? Usually it goes back to this. Do you trust God's character and his truth? Do you trust him so much that you're willing to bring everything under his lordship? That's the big question. Secondly, we've got to treat our temptations as baited hooks. Treat it like a baited hook. So when it starts being dangled in front of you, hey, come over here. Do this. Come on. Yeah. God didn't really mean that. No, no. He didn't mean it. When all of a sudden the hooks are coming out, will we run from it and avoid it at all costs, or are we going to do what Adam and Eve did, quote scripture and still give in? Can we not be like Adam and Eve for once? Can we not give in to temptation here? I'm saying this for myself too. Can we really not be like Adam and Eve for once? Because Adam and Eve, what they do, they see the temptation in front of them. They can quote scripture all day long. But they still give in to what the serpent puts in front of them. And they bite on the lure. Instead, they should have ran back to God. And are we doing that? Are we really? If we treated it like baited hooks, like you and I, I know when I'm in the boat, I'm always trying to be so careful at where I place my hand because I don't want to hook my hand. I've been hooked in the finger before, and it hurts. And when I do it, I'll say, I'll never do that again. Do we even feel the hook of temptation? Do we? Are we able to avoid it and run from it? Number three, pray for God to change the desires of my heart. Remember, James says that the desires, you're lured and enticed. God's not the source of temptation, but every person is lured and enticed by his own desires and sent. There's a whole process to it. I want to suggest to you that this is my tackle box that I used to fish out of, and it hit me that this week, you know, our hearts could be compared to that of a tackle box. Remember, temptation is that pressure you feel from those inner desires being enticed and lured by the rest of the world. So the world dangles something in front of you, and you feel that pressure inside because it's playing on your inner desires of your heart. And if anything, our heart is a manufacturer of all these lures. 
All Satan's got to do is just take one out, put it in front of you, and when you feel the void, you will try to fill it with something contrary to God's will. Our hearts are no better than the tackle boxes we carry around. And what we often try to do with temptation is this. Well, if I just, if I just resist it, oh, if I just have white-knuckle discipline, if I just white-knuckle discipline the whole thing and move away from it, well, maybe, just maybe it'll go away. Or if I just stay here and resist the urge over and over and over again, and yet we still keep falling to it over and over and over again. My friends, what if we just prayed for God to take out the lures of our heart and replace it with something different? What if we prayed for God, make my heart more like your heart? Help me see the lures for what they are. Please take this from me. Rearrange it for me. Help me surrender and submit to your will. What if we did that? Now, I'm not saying you're not, there's not a part of where you resist you know, white-knuckle discipline. There's not a part... There's not a sense where it's all God or all me. It's, it's both. That's what makes a relationship, right? What if we prayed for God to change the desires of our hearts this week? How would your life look completely different? How would your life look completely different at work, at school, at home, when we trust God's character and his truth, when we treat our temptations as baited hooks, and we prayed for God to change our desires? What if we this week? Temptations lure us towards death, but God's truth draws us to life. The truth of the matter is today, if you and I are willing to practice, the ongo- if you've already been baptized, practice the ongoing ethics of confession and repentance, we're told that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's ongoing. But we've got to walk in the light, and that's the truth that we need today. Today, if you're struggling with a temptation with a trial, with a test. Your biggest temptation today is to walk out of this building and not say a thing to anybody. You don't necessarily have to come forward this morning, but I urge you and I plead with you, if you're dealing with something, battling something, tell somebody. Later in James, James will say that you need to pray, we need to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You can be forgiven by God, but still have the wound. I urge you, find somebody to talk to about your temptations or your trials or your testings. It only gets worse from here if you don't talk about it. Today, if, if today is the day you decide that I want to throw away the tackle box of sin in my life and I want, to, want God to make my heart new and clean and fresh in the waters of baptism, I urge you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.